Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn. And I'm Andrea Ballard. Every week we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. On today's show, we continue our celebration of National Pie Month with some weird ones. Vinegar, chess, buttermilk, raisin. Unusual? Yes. Delicious? Let's find out. And Pie School is back in session with a lesson on the secrets of blind baking, including a debate on dried beans versus pie weights. So grab a cup of coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. Hey, Andrea, in episode 14 last week, you were talking about some banana bread, and it made me think of some other tea breads that I had been wanting to try. So this weekend, I did two. I did a gingerbread cranberry or cranberry gingerbread. And we had talked a, a few episodes ago about you doing a big batch gingerbread. And this yes. is this is a gingerbread that wouldn't work for that, unfortunately. But it is a gingerbread in a loaf pan. And okay. it has um, some fresh cranberries, which I had in the freezer still from holiday time, and also uses fresh ginger. So it was Ooh. very moist, really delicious. I felt like I was really cleaning up the kitchen with this one. I got rid of my cranberries. <laughs> I used up the last of my molasses. It was, you know, it was really, really efficient. A little post-holiday baking cleanup. You got it. And the other one I made was an Earl Grey tea bread, and it had a lemon glaze. And mm-hmm. it called for – I'm a big tea person, as you know – and I love Earl Grey tea, which is a black tea, and it has a, like a citrus essence in it. Bergamot okay. is actually the the essential oil. And this recipe called for a tablespoon of loose tea. Well, I didn't Ooh. have any um, bulk loose tea of Earl Grey. I just had tea okay. bags. Do you know how many tea bags it takes to make a tablespoon of tea? <laughs> Oh, I would have thought that was just one. Exactly. So did I. It was like six. So anyway, I would, you know, if you're going to make something like that, then just go with the bulk tea. But they were both really good, kind of unusual. I did some mini loaves. So I threw some in the freezer. I wrap them up really tightly in foil and then also put them in a Ziploc bag. And I find they keep really well. And toward that end, I also had been down in our international district for Chinese New Year, and there's mm-hmm. a wonderful Asian um, dollar store. It's actually a dollar fifty store called Daiso, and I, I got love that place. The most you never know what you're going to find there, which is right. what I love. Mm-hmm. And I found the most adorable tin foils, Andrea, and I'm going to have to post a picture. You know, you think of tin foils as very utilitarian. It only comes in silver. I found one roll that was pink with hearts, and it says happy all over it. Oh, fun. <laughs> and the other one is light green with ladybugs and sunshines, and I think hearts on that one, too. I just thought, oh, it's just perfect. I love seeing my bread wrapped up in these happy, happy tin foils, and they cost a buck fifty each. So, And that was, was for, one, for one or for a pack? A dollar fifty each. Oh, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's a good deal. Yes. I like it. So yeah, really cute. I love, I love that store too for um, tiny little containers when you're packing lunches and you can put in things like ketchup or mustard or salad dressing in these little containers that they sell and they're so cute. <laughs> it's also a great place. They have a lot of nice glassware like canning jars or things if you had wanted to pack up like homemade granola or mm-hmm. something. It's a great resource for that too. 
I'm also on the second milk frother that I have bought from there. So it's battery operated. It cost $1.50. It works way better than my um, homemade high-end espresso machine. Oh, <laughs> and, fascinating. And, you know, anyone can use it. So you just pop it into your cup and you turn it on and it froths that milk right up and uh, nice and foamy. And especially with my daughter, she doesn't like her milk to be super hot anyway. Um, so it works out really great. Nice, nice tip. So if you have a store like that in your area, definitely worth checking out for baking-related stuff. Well, I also did a little bit of travel down to Portland, Oregon, and I wanted to report back on an interesting new place that I found. Yeah. It was called Quinn Candy Store. And <laughs> I love it already. <laughs> Q-U-I-N. Okay. And I loved it for a couple of reasons. One is I love the idea of a candy store, and I've never actually been in one in reality. So in my head, they should be like they are in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You know, a, a store that just has tons of glass jars filled with all of these beautiful candies. And you should be able to go in there with a nickel and, you know, get a, <laughs> get a few things. Well, uh, uh, those were the days. Those were the days. Quinn has some of those aspects. It's a tiny little storefront, which I love, and the shelves are all right there, and you can see all of the beautiful candies, and everything is in the nice glass jars. Um, they are individually wrapped, so they have lollipops, caramels, and then homemade candies. And the closest thing that I can compare them to is uh, Starburst. Okay, yum. So strawberry, but their flavors, you know, strawberry, cherry, lime, all of these different fresh flavors, they were 60 cents a piece, not a nickel. So you definitely, you know, have to rein it in a little bit. But I bought four of the caramels for myself and four of the Starburst type things for my daughter. And I brought those home and I didn't even tell her what I thought they were. I just gave her one and said, hey, taste this. Tell me if you like it. And she ate it. And she said, mommy, this is like the best Starburst ever. Right. And then she asked me if I could make it for her. And I thought, oh, I've never attempted candy making. So I did do a search for um, homemade Starburst. And I saw a lot of recipes out there on Pinterest and some other sources. So I'd love to throw this one out to the listeners. If any of you have had success making homemade Starburst or anything in the homemade sort of gummy category, you know, gumdrops or gummy worms or that kind of thing, I would love to know what you use used and how it turned out. And then I will attempt it on my own. So that's just a little mini challenge for you guys. If you could help me out and send me some homemade candy recipes. I love it. And, you know, we had kind of casually talked about doing a whole month about homemade treats. Like I know that my friend Lydia has a recipe for homemade Twix bars. Oh, right. You know, things like that. So maybe this is really, we could start compiling some really good ideas about homemade goodies. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Because this one was worth, you know, we talked about how we're not going to try and recreate the Oreo at home, right? Yes. But this one, the difference between the Quinn Candy Starburst versus the, you know, off-the-shelf purchase Starburst was night and day. I mean, it was so fabulous and so fresh and so chewy and didn't have that chemically, you know, taste to it at all. So I, you know, depending on the amount of work it takes, I think it might be worth it to figure out how to recreate that at home. I love Sour Patch Kids, so if anyone's got a homemade <laughs> version of that. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. See, I can't do Sour Patch because it violates my food rule of food should not hurt. And it does. So I'm thinking that maybe if – because it, what it does to me is it, like, scrapes the top of my mouth raw. 
right? Because it's got like that sugary crystal coating. Yeah. So maybe a homemade version, you can somehow avoid oh. that. Yeah, maybe you can tone down this hour a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. Mm. Some, yeah, so great. Listeners, if you have any experience candy making in general, I'd be really interested in hearing about too. Yeah, maybe we need to just slot that out for a future month. So let us know what you guys think if we should tackle some candy making. That sounds great. Well, we are going to review our tart to tan, Martha Stewart's favorite tart to tan from last week. It was our upside down um, apple pie made in a cast iron skillet. And I'm going to go ahead and start my review because I had a monumental fail with this thing. Oh, no. Oh, Oh, Andrea. Oh, it was ugly from start to finish. And I, you know, based on our production schedule and when we when we talk about things versus actually make them, it can vary a little bit. And I have been dying to tell you about this. Um, I, yeah, I realized a couple things with this recipe. Um, <laughs> well, so maybe first um, we should talk about how it's supposed to work. <laughs> Because I did not have a fail. Okay. See, I'm, um, I'm very glad to hear this. All right. Well, then would you like to lead the charge? And then I will I will walk it back and tell you all the points at which I clearly missed missed something. Sure. Okay. Well, and that's interesting because, you know, we talked about Intimidation Station um, back on episode 14. And I was a little intimidated by this recipe because it's in a skillet and it involves a caramel. And I immediately thought to myself, it's going to get stuck. And so I was very oh. nervous about that. Okay. Um, I the recipe is in a 9-inch cast iron skillet, which I do not have. So I measured mine. I have a 12-inch and a 14-inch, and I decided that was just too big and you know, I was already worried about it sticking. And so I was rummaging around in the kitchen looking for the right size skillet, and uh, my husband reminded me that I had a little cast iron skillet. So I actually cut the recipe in half and made it in my five-inch cast iron skillet, which is almost perfect for our three-person family. I and mean, it's super adorable, I would probably and think. super adorable. I yeah. mean, I think it would be a really fun way. I think it's still too big to be an individual serving for sure, but it yeah. would be really <laughs> – not judge, okay? <laughs> it depends on the individual. And the day um, you're having, yes. On the day you're having. I mean, it's it's obviously it's five inches uh, in diameter. So you decide if, if that's as much as you want. I think it would be great to split. So this might be another um, super fun one if you're just looking for something for two people. Yeah. Uh, so the crust is a, uh, pardon me if I don't say this correctly, pâté brisé. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, and I looked that up. That uh, is a literal translation into broken dough. And I didn't find a huge difference between this crust and the pie crust that I usually use. So Yeah, it was a butter-heavy crust. Butter-heavy, and it does add a little sugar to it. Right. So, you know, that was the big difference. So I made the crust. I popped that into the fridge. And then um, into the cast iron skillet on the stove, you put a little bit of water and some sugar. And you bring it to a boil. And as soon as it comes to a boil, you reduce the heat and um, the mixture will start to thicken and it'll turn a little bit brown. Now, in my case, um, and it says once it turns brown, that's when you want to remove it from heat and stir in some butter. In my case, that's when the smoke detector went off. So 
Yeah, that was just a good indicator to me that it was probably time to pull it. And um, and this from someone who had a successful recipe. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, the smoke, sadly, the smoke detector in my house is a regular occurrence. Yeah, so um, yeah. I, I tend to get distracted while I'm cooking. So I'm sure normally when you're making caramel, you should stand there and eye it closely. I was doing about 14 other things at the same time. So I pulled it off the heat. I stirred in the butter. And then I had um, sliced my apples using my... Uh, beloved Unitasker, the Apple Corer. I know I have previously <gasps> criticized Unitaskers, but I am a convert. Andrea, the thing. truth comes out. You, you're going to be all about the you know spiralizer and uh, rice cooker next. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, you know, um, Amy at our pie camp reunion pulled out the apple core when we went to make an apple pie. And I thought, okay, this woman owned a successful bakery and, and baked for a living. So if she finds the apple core to be useful, what am I doing trying to slice it by hand? Yeah, right. And especially in this recipe where Martha does not want you to do thin slices, um, you're actually doing the apples kind of in, in thicker slices than what I would even normally think. So I thought it worked great. Um, you lay those in on the top of the skillet, right on top of that caramel. And then you roll out your dough, you place it on top of the skillet, you tuck the edges in, cook it in the oven for about 20 minutes at 375. Um, I pulled it out and then I waited for 20 minutes because I thought it still needs to be warm to come out easily. Mm -hmm. But if it's, if it's too hot, I was afraid I would burn myself. And I just put a plate over the top of it, inverted it. It popped right out. It was beautiful. Um, I couldn't be happier. Whoa. Well, so <laughs> where to begin with my, other ta- than the with smoke my tale de- of woe? Yeah. Other than the smoke detector, I had a success. So why don't you walk us through and tell us what went wrong with yours? Well, maybe the only positive I can say is my smoke detector did not go off. <laughs> <laughs> It just seemed it was one of those recipes that I I just felt like it was it was um, a little bit cursed from the start. Mm. And the first thing that happened is um, she suggests Brayburn apples. Well, my mm. very favorite grocery store didn't have Brayburn this day. That's really unusual oh. for them. I know yeah. we're kind of getting out of of apple season, yeah. but they had. Um, I asked the produce worker what he would suggest. And he said there was a new apple called Autumn Gold. Now, I hadn't heard of this apple. I did a little research about it. It's a really new apple. It was just introduced in 2013. And it's a blend of Fuji and Golden Delicious. So I thought, all right, I'll give these a try. Well, they were pretty big apples also. Mm -hmm. I find that I had a problem with this recipe because there's not a lot of specificity. So she says five to six medium apples. Well, Martha, what if my apples are much, much bigger than your apples, which I think was my first problem. These apples were Mm -hmm. pretty big. Mm -hmm. I then, she also says squeeze lemon over apple. Well, how much lemon? Like half a half a lemon, a little bit more. I think I had too much liquid in this recipe. Yeah, I didn't squeeze any lemon over it. Okay. I didn't have any. So you just didn't even do that. <laughs> I skipped that. Then step. you're making then you're making the caramel. Now, when I've made caramel for other things in the past, I don't touch it. I, I just let it bubble away and turn golden. But I was worried because my cast iron skillet is black. I mm-hmm. can't see if it's burning. And mm-hmm. so I started to stir it a little, getting a paranoid. And mm-hmm. I think that also worked against me. 
Oh, interesting. There's yeah, a- I did not stir mine, not because that was in the instructions, but because I think I was doing dishes. That's that's why the smoke detector went off. Because <laughs> which I in just this let case it was was a perfect thing to have happened. Yeah. Um, and then, so once your caramel is done, you layer the apple slices on top, and then you you cook it on the stove top, and it says until the syrup is thickened and reduced by half. I, <gasps> I, I didn't do that. Well, that was a brilliant thing because. <gasps> Because I couldn't see if the syrup had reduced by half because it's covered in apple. <laughs> oh my gosh! I entire I skipped an entire but it step. it totally worked for you. So that's <laughs> so interesting because what happened during that portion, which this makes a lot of sense to me now. Wow! This is why it's so fascinating when two people make the exact same recipe to me, right? Yes. Um, what happened to me is my apples started breaking down because they were they were heating up, they were cooking, and I think there was too much moisture in this particular kind of apple. And so it just got soggier and soggier and soggier. So once I have my pastry crust there and I've put it in the oven, it looks beautiful. You know, I I turned it out. It was so heavy. My husband had to come help me turn this <laughs> skillet over because I'm using my heavy like cast iron skillet. And what happened? I turn it over and all the liquid just pours everywhere, all and over my, the counter. Mine but that's none. that could be because you didn't do that step. Your syrup was already thick. You didn't then also get the moisture from the apples into yeah. that liquid. No, so it was super thick. When I mixed the butter in and then I started layering the apples in, I mean, I was really nestling the apples into there. And it was it was not the consistency of like what you would dip caramel apples into at, you know, yeah, Halloween. Right, right. But it was close. It was pretty sticky and thick. Yeah. And I never I never got there. So this wow. was I felt um I, I felt sad. <laughs> Well, you know, this is interesting, too, on the whole apple thing, because one thing that has always stuck in my mind, when I make apple pies, I love you going down to the farmer's market and getting a bunch of different apples. And I love to have like six to eight different apples in my apple pie. Yes. But someone I remember once telling me, red delicious makes not delicious. And so I've never used anything with the word delicious in it. And I think it's something about the texture or the mealiness. I can't remember the details, but I wonder if that golden delicious is just not a good baking apple. Well, that didn't concern me because in my, when I just make a standard apple pie, I do a Granny Smith and a golden delicious. And the Granny Smith is a very firm apple and the Mm -hmm. golden then gets a little mushy. So I like the play of the texture. And when I was thinking back about a Fuji, I thought, I think that's a pretty firm apple also. So this and is kind I, of a blend a, of that. Yeah. I use a Fuji too. So that uh-huh. I, mm, yeah. Wow. Anyhow, I love wow, apple pie. So, I usually have great success mm. with a Martha recipe. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I like cooking in a skillet. Um, I Maybe I'll try, maybe I'll try a little smaller one and maybe I'll skip that number four step. Well, here's what I learned. For once in my life, the ADD (laughs) comes in handy because as I was doing my dishes, I think that I did not stir my caramel. So I think maybe that helped it set up. And then I I literally, when you look at the recipe, I totally skipped step four. I I did not even realize that. I think because um, when I was layering my apples in, I was trying to make it decorative and pretty. And then I had these gaps. And so I was like, oh, what am I going to do now? And I noticed she had this instruction of if fruit does not completely fill the pan, the tart will collapse when inverted. So then I I took to sort of chunking up some of my apples and kind of fitting them in. And I was so focused on that step. And I was so happy that I really did fill my apples right to the rim 
of the skillet that I thought, oh, this is perfect. My pastry is just going to lay on this so nicely. And I just grabbed the pastry and put it right over it. I mean, I, I did not even realize I skipped that step, but maybe that's what made it work. Yeah, I think your caramel was plenty thick already. Yeah. Yeah, thanks okay. to the smoke detector. So listeners, where did you fall on this one? Did you have a great success like Andrea? Were you more in my sad little little school? Oh, I would just love it if some people baked along on this one and we got some feedback because I'm fascinated now with with uh, whether or not you should skip that step. So I do recommend you watch the video. I found that to be very helpful. And then um, make your own judgment on the thickness of your caramel of whether you're going to boil it down further or not. So take a put an asterisk next to step four. And when we post it on our website, uh, preheatedpodcast.com, we'll make sure to make a note that you might need to skip this step. or remove the batteries from your smoke detector (laughs) yeah oh no safety safety does not safety first that's true that's true (laughs) what was i thinking well let's move on into something that um, hopefully is not as challenging but it might challenge your mind because it might be a little bit different one thing i've noticed in the various pie groups that i belong to is that people are always interested in different pies or weird pies and some of the things whenever you know people will post and say like what's the strangest pie you've ever made or the most different pie you'll see things like a chess pie or a vinegar pie or a concord grape pie. Those are some of the ones that I've seen pop up. So Stefan and I thought we would tackle a weird pie. So what did you think, Stefan? What came to your mind when you thought of something different and unusual? Well, my grandma always talked about a raisin pie. She was always crazy oh. craving a raisin pie. And that just does not appeal. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm right with you. I, I just... I'm not a huge raisin lover no. anyway. So Yeah, I I mean, I like some dried fruits, definitely, but a mm-hmm. whole pie of raisin, I just yeah. yeah, I couldn't ever get on board with that. Sorry, Grandma. Sorry, Grandma. Um, and so I started doing some his- research on these historical pies, and I love to do that. And I think what we should probably call these pies is not weird, but historical because I like that. They all fall under a category that's called a desperation pie. And so these are pies that came about simply because people didn't have other things to make a pie with. And so, for example, a vinegar pie was kind of like a poor man's lemon pie. You didn't have lemons. They were very expensive. They were out of season. Vinegar provides that like acidic sharpness. Mm -hmm. Same thing with if you've heard of a mock apple pie, which uses a Ritz cracker soaked in apple juice. That That I think was more popular when Ritz crackers were cheaper than apples. I think they're probably more (laughs) expensive than apples. Now, right that right. that might have been a, a Ritz company kitchen coming up with that particular item. Yes, a green tomato pie, uh, something mm. called a Hoosier cream or buttermilk pie. Also, so it, it these are pies that were all pretty quick and easy, and they made use of what was on hand when you had it. And the fascinating thing about food and cycles of history is that these pies are becoming in vogue again because there's such a revival of. In-season, heritage cooking, small batch Mm -hmm. cooking, and obviously more unusual pies that people are not familiar with. So our chess pie that we're going to talk about – and Andrea, had you been familiar with a chess pie? It is a southern – Yes. Pie. Okay. Yes. I grew up with chess pie and I have always loved it. Um, I can't, I'll have to find out if my mom made it. I think I, I definitely had it at other people's houses and I think it was a staple at church picnics. Um, 
the I love the phrase desperation pies. I had not heard that before. What we would call these is pantry pies, meaning yep. it was stuff that was already in your pantry. You, you didn't had have it. To- out. And so with chess pie, you're basically looking at flour, butter, sugar, and eggs, which most, you know, farmhouse wives tended to have on hand. Absolutely. And this recipe we've chosen is a chocolate chess pie, and it's from blogger Kristen at thespicysouthernkitchen.com. I love her blog name. (laughs) Well, and of course, we have chocolate on hand. So it still is a pantry pie for us. It absolutely is. And so a chess pie historically was just what Andrea said, more of a vanilla flavor. But lemon and chocolate are also variations that are very, very popular. And a chess pie is kind of like a cheeseless cheesecake is one of the ways I heard it described. It's a custard pie. Its name, chess pie, is there's there's two schools of thought. Uh, both have to do with the language. It came from either a southern drawl because you would call it a chest chest pie, like you would keep it in your your um, pie chest as opposed to needing to refrigerate it. And as other people in other parts of the country heard that, they didn't hear chest; they heard chess. So that's one mm-hmm. theory. Oh, that's um, interesting because we called it a pie safe, not a pie, pie chest. safe. Right, but same. Yeah. It's like a it's but, it's designated drawer or or bin, right? Yes. Okay. Okay. And the other the other theory is that it's actually um, the Eng- English. Um, English English, British English, uh, that lemon curd is actually very similar to the filling of a lemon chess pie. And so Mm. it was another mispronunciation um, by the American dialect of the English cheese. That's interesting. So I had heard two different um, origin stories, of course. Oh, yeah, right. So one is that I heard it was traditionally served to the men when they would retire from the dinner and go into the drawing room to play chess. And so that's why it was called the chess pie. The other was I heard was, a, again, a variation on pronunciation, Southern. So it's like someone saying, it's just pie. And it would, like, if you think of the word just, but instead kind of J-E-S apostrophe, you know, and then that would sort of be heard as chess, chess pie. I got like, it. It's just pie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, whatever you choose to call it, we're really excited. This is a very, very easy pie. You're not flipping anything upside down. No. You are. <laughs> There are no smoke detectors. You, you likely have everything on hand. It's a very simple, just a, a, a pastry crust, a, another single crust pie with your yep. filling. Bake it up. And um, I want to just give a shout out to a website that I found when I was researching these pies. And it's called What's Cooking America. And it's not what's cooking. It's what's cooking America. <laughs> it is fabulous. It has it has food by region, by um, by type of food. It's it's really fun. I really got lost on it. It's researching a ton of other things. So I'm sure that will be a, a resource that we use again and again. What's yes. cooking America? Cooking and we, America. And we will throw that in our show notes. So I can't wait to check that out. Yeah, absolutely do. And we're going to put that pie recipe again from SpicySouthernKitchen.com. We will link to that chocolate chess pie. Another great one for upcoming Valentine's Day if you are a chocolate uh person who wants to make something for their sweetheart. Yes. Okay. Well, we have a third installment of our very famous pie school, and we are going to tackle a real bugaboo of mine. Andrea, I hope you can help me. Dear Andrea, this is like dear Agni Aunt, dear Andrea, I just, I just can't get blind 
baking. And blind baking means that you are baking your pie crust without a filling. And sometimes you blind bake partially if you have a filling that also needs to uh, be cooked, but not for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're blind baking um, with the whole time. So you want your crust to be absolutely finished because you have a uh, filling that's uncooked or you're going to cook on a stovetop. Mm-hmm. Here's my issues with blind baking. I have these every time. Okay. My pie crust looks beautiful. I put it in the tin. I have high fluted sides. Um, I put in a piece of buttered tin foil. I put in my mm-hmm. pie weights. I mm-hmm. stick it in the oven for seven or eight minutes until it starts to firm up. And inevitably what happens at this point is my sides collapse. And they all go to the bottom of the pie dish. Mm -hmm. And I had thought for a while that I wasn't using enough pie weights. Santa Mm -hmm. did bring me some more pie weights for Christmas. So Mm -hmm. I I feel like I have plenty loaded in there. And I'm just wondering if you have tips about that problem specifically or, or other blind baking snafus that you can share with us. I have a tip for that problem, but I too find blind baking to be a huge challenge. Okay. So this is this is a pie school lesson where um, both the teachers are scratching their heads a bit. <laughs> so I'd I'd love to have listeners weigh in on this. Um, so I think one thing that might help you, and this has definitely helped me, is to freeze the crust before you put it in the oven. So put it all in the pie sh- pie um, tin and then stick it in the freezer. Yep. How yep, long? Sure. Like 15 minutes? I would say 15 to 20 minutes. Okay. Yep. I'm writing this down. I think because I've never had that side slump okay. that you're talking about. Okay. What I have had, and the freezing has not helped this, is shrinkage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so can, but a uniform shrinkage, like everywhere it tightens up? Yes. Okay. Yes. It just, so um, I've tried sort of leaving more of an overhang than I typically would. So let's say if I normally would line up my crimped edge with the edge of the pie plate, I'll try and have it about half an inch outside of the edge. Um, I've tried, you know, freezing it longer because I've heard, oh, freezing will really help with shrinkage. I still have not fixed the shrinkage challenge. Lately, I've just thought, well, who cares? I mean, it's still pretty. <laughs> it, you're it getting just, a pie. <laughs> yeah, you're still getting pie. It just looks smaller in the pan than I I think is ideal. You know, so it's not going to win any Pinterest awards for pretty pie. Yeah. But um, I read something recently where a lady was talking about, you know, she really thinks that overstretching the dough is what causes the shrinkage. So next time I do it, I'm going to be really careful when I place it in the pie plant pie pan and I crimp my edges, I'm going to try and be much more delicate than I normally am to see if maybe that will make a difference. I've heard that too. And so I'm always, I try to be very ginger when I'm moving the rolled out crust from the board to the pie tin Mm -hmm. also that I'm just really trying to not manipulate that more than I have to. Um, Okay. Well, I'm going to definitely start with this freezing idea and see if that helps me. I also have never used pie weights. I don't have any. I've always used the dried beans. And right. so, um, you know, that works. <laughs> and and it does fill up to the side. So maybe that's it, too, because I do, you know, I, I fill the pan with them. And th- there's nothing special about those beans, listeners. Those are just dried beans that you, you're not going to eat them after you bake them. That would not work. But they are specifically for uh, for blind baking. So do you just keep them in a jar or reuse them or how do, do you? Yep. 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 I keep them in a jar. I reuse them. They're labeled dried beans. Do not eat in my pantry. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and um, I this is probably obvious, but it's worth mentioning. You're not putting those beans directly on your pie crust. You want to do a, you know, buttered piece of parchment paper or tinfoil, something like that between your crust and your pie beans. Yeah. And my pie weights just look like a long uh, necklace of silver ball bearings. And they uh, come in a big strand. And I yeah. just kind of coil them inside the um, the pie tin. Maybe I will. Maybe I can use... Do you think there'd be any harm in using both at the same time? Um, I don't think there'd be any harm. I mean, I think the the pie weights could fill the bottom quite nicely. And then maybe you could put some beans around the edge to sort of shore up the sides. So when you've got your beans in there, does it look like the filling is all bean? Not as much as, say, like a fruit filling, but it's definitely more than just a single layer of beans. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, the month is young. I have many pies left to eat and make before before the 28th. Uh, so great. Yeah, nice yeah. tips. Listeners, if you've got some tips for us too about blind baking successes or questions uh, about that as well, let us know. Yeah, we would love some help with our blind baking. It's a lovely way to have a custard pie, a chocolate pudding pie, a lemon meringue pie. So it's really something that I would love to get better at. I, I The flavor I've got down, it's just that shrinkage issue. Yeah, so. I hear you. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get back to our dishes. Join us next week as we wrap up our month of pies with two of our favorite flavors, and I divulge my secret for delicious fruit pies year-round. We'll also check in with some favorite pies from our Facebook friends. Remember, you can find us and our featured recipes on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, on Facebook and Pinterest. You can also download us on iTunes, where we'd love it if you subscribed to the show and gave us a review, both of which will help other people find us. Until next time, thanks for listening and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, performed, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stephen Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.